Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. So, Mark, just quick before we start, I'm just going to tell you that this is conversational, easy, candid. You don't strike me like someone who's going to, you know, sort of balk at any of the questions I ask you. But if I do ask you something that you don't want to answer, you know, we don't have to do it. Do your worst, Mr. Michelson. (laughs) Hey, I'm Noah Michelson, and this is D is for Desire, the podcast where we look at love and sex from angles you could have never imagined in health class. And actually... Let's step completely out of the classroom for this episode and go on a little field trip. Let's talk about gritty, intimate experience. There are first crushes, first kisses, first ideas of what sex is, and all the fears and questions that come with it. And that's just the start. Then there might be relationships, unrequited loves, one-night stands, heartbreak, twists and turns, maybe some bad sex, Hopefully some good sex. Sex you can't remember for the life of you. No sex? No matter what you've encountered, desire is a story and we all have one to tell. Mark certainly does. You heard him at the top. He's an award-winning blogger, author, and speaker, and he's won a slew of awards for the HIV, AIDS, activism, and journalism he's done. But we're not here to learn from Mark as an expert, per se. We're here to talk about something else. Well, my name is Mark S. King, and I am perilously close to the age of 60. I am 59 years old. And I have had sex with approximately seven to 10,000 people. That number just blows my mind. And, and not even like... It does. Well, first of all, it's kind of like you're saying, how can you possibly smoke two packs a day? That's how I feel about people who smoke two packs a day. Where do they find the time? And yet they do. Right, right. It's just packed with all sorts of baggage, isn't it? In terms of what I've just revealed about myself and what I think you're thinking about me. Does that worry you at all? I mean, do you care what people think? No. You don't? I don't. I'm shameless. Uh, and by that, I mean, I have no shame about the, that which I should have no shame about. You know, I mean, I've I've kind of come to terms with all that I am and all that I've done. And I think uh, there are reasons for it. 
There's a great Phyllis Diller quote when she comes out and says, you know, there's no excuse for looking like this. There are reasons. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's no excuse for uh, having had sex with so many good people, but there are reasons. When did you first find out about sex? And I don't mean when were you taught about it, but when did you first sort of even know that it was a thing? How old were you? And, and can you pinpoint that moment? I definitely wasn't exposed to sex the way that, you know, a young person might come across it today. Because, of course, I, I was a child in the 60s. So there was not access to anything that I, as a kid, might happen across. We're talking about, you know, dirty magazines and brown paper wrappers that were in those kind of places. In other words, it's not like I stumbled across it online. That was impossible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I only had my own desire. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so to me, sex started when I had a desire that was this kind of undefinable thing that I could feel in me and I didn't know where to target it until I started seeing, you know, um, my hairy chested camp counselor when I was, you know, whatever I was 10, uh, you know, things like I, I would start seeing things that became the object of the desire. Mm -hmm. And you would lock in on that and say, okay, this feels like this is connected to what I'm feeling. You started to connect yes. the dots. I started to connect the dots. Talk to me about the very first furtive experience you had. What was your first time? And how old were you? I was 12. I was 12. And Al McDowell uh, spent the night. And Al McDowell was 16. At any rate, I was doing a play and he was in it. We became friends and I was fascinated by him because he was 16 and he had facial hair. Hmm. And so I wanted to be Al McDowell. And the conversation quickly went to sex <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, or, or what he knew of sex, which was a lot more than I knew. And he was surprised to learn that I had never uh, jacked off. I didn't exactly knew what, know what that was. And so he was more than happy to show me mm. and demonstrate. And uh, I remember saying, stop, stop, I'm going to pee. Stop, I'm going to pee. Stop, I'm going to pee. Um, and I didn't pee. And I remember feeling sick to my stomach because I didn't know what that was uh, and what it meant. But I was lightheaded and felt a little nauseous and thought, oh, my God, uh, I've, I've, I've broken it. Was there any emotional or psychological component to what you were feeling at that point? Were you thinking what I just did was wrong? No, I, I found it adventurous. Uh, I liked the escapist nature of it. I liked the kind of uh, naughty, don't tell anybody nature of it. Um, I liked the validation of it. I wanted to just keep doing this thing that felt good with different people to see how they did it. Mm. Um, and, and that was it. I, I wanted to keep exploring and see what, who else is doing this? So what do they do it? And what do they do it? What do they look like when they're doing it? Who else is doing this? You know, all of that. That was kind of like my coming out summer. 
I met Al McDowell. That happened. I met a boy at camp who was in the next bunk. That happened. And then within, like, a very quickly, I, I, I figured out... Okay, these kids—they're—they're—they're—they're going to freak out and tell their moms, and I can't have that. I need to go find somebody to do this stuff with who—who who won't tell. Now, at the same time, I was going to church. I sang in the youth choir. I was—I always say we weren't religious; we were Methodist. I went to a lot of youth revivals, and I got baptized a lot. I thought to myself, this might take care of this problem. You know, if it is in fact a problem. This will take care of it. I'm a good kid. God loves me. He'll fix this if, there's, if this is a problem. And the thing is, is that you have to be in a locker room behind the, the, the baptismal fount. There's a locker room, and there you are with the other boys, and you're all getting down to your underwear and putting on your little white thing, uh, white robe. And, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, maybe this will cure me, right? And then 20 minutes later, you're back in that locker room with the same boys, except now they're all naked and wet. I love that even at church, you were cruising. <laughs> oh my God, yes. Because now they're soaking wet in wet, and it's a wet underwear contest with other teenage boys who were all getting baptized with me. So I got baptized a lot. It, it, it didn't take. <laughs> then talk to me about then how you, how you moved on to older men and, and where you found them. Oh, community theater. Community theater. And that's where I found gay men. I will never forget Patrick McWilliams dashing into a rehearsal. I'm, I'm 13 years old, and he's holding Bette Midler's album, saying, the goddess has arrived, the goddess has arrived, and it's Bette Midler. I have no idea what he's talking about or who this woman is, but I know instinctively I need to find out who she is. Because Patrick McWilliams, who is very gay and very attractive, thinks she's something. So I need to go find out who she is. I, I took all of my cultural cues from these gay men that I was meeting. And along the way, Mark didn't drive. He would need rides home from rehearsal. I lived in Louisiana. There would be little stops in the cotton fields on the way home uh, to look at the moon. Uh, sometimes I was the one that suggested this, uh, actually, well, mo maybe most of the time. Because I would target them. I would go like, oh, him, oh, him. I, you know, how can I get alone with him? How can I make some time with him, you know? All I know is that I was seeking out the company of people who were, uh, who had their shit together, who weren't going to run and tell their mom that I could kind of play with. And there was one guy who was very kind to me and was my friend for many years. And he was, you know, 10 years older than me or something. And uh, but he was very kind to me and we would get together and there would be kind of sexual stuff, but he would also talk to me about being gay and the bigger picture and what it all meant. And, uh, and I appreciated that very much. Did you identify as gay at that point? I guess I did. Yes. I, I, I never thought maybe I'm not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no. I think there's a cloud hanging over this right at this point, which is listening to your story in 2020 is very different than how you experienced it and how a lot of gay men experienced it back in the 60s and 70s. And that is, I think people hear you say that you were a teenager and you were seeking out older men to have sex with. I think that raises a red flag for a lot of people. 
But I would love to hear your thoughts about how you think about that now compared to then and and what was going through your mind at the time in terms of you actively almost, you know, being predatory and in, in, in terms of looking for these men when they were having sex with a minor. Right. And it's, oh gosh, boy, is it loaded? Is it, there's so much baggage with all of this. And, and I want to respect that. I want to just say firsthand that this is uh, horrifying uh, to a lot of people when they uh, were they to hear me talk about it. And, um, um, and so I want to respect that. And I, I want to respect the fact that a lot of people say, mm-hmm. you were not the predator, Mark. You didn't know what you were doing. They did. And I hear that. Um, and, and it's easy for me to be flip about it only because I was flip about it while it was going on. I, I, I would say, thank God they were willing to have sex with me. Otherwise, I never would have gotten laid. <laughs> and that's what I was looking for. That was what I was trying so hard to do was to get laid. I'll put it, I'll tell you, there were times when they were clearly mortified uh, after the fact. I'll never forget this guy. Um, I had manipulated a situation where we stopped by his house on the way to a pool party after a rehearsal because I don't have a bathing suit. I tell him, could I try on some of yours? I mean, I remember this clearly. This was not, this was me setting it up so I could get alone with him. And so then there is a very quick encounter and um, uh, at his place and we're in the car and we're driving on to the cast party. And he has to pull over because he is crying. And, and this is where my immaturity versus his maturity and his sense of perspective was so different. He was in tears and just had to pull over and he was breaking down. And I had no idea why. What is wrong with him? I've never seen a grown man cry like this. He must be so embarrassed. What do I do? What do I say? And, and he looks and he says, he says, Mark, I'm twice your age. I'm, I'm twice your age. Don't, don't you just want to be 15 years old? And I was dumbfounded. I had no idea what he meant. I remember the conversation really clearly because I knew it felt important, but I had no idea what he was trying to say to me. And... Um, I just wanted to go to the party. I I just wanted him to stop crying so we could get to the party. I, I remember that often. What would become of me, which was being extremely promiscuous, hypersexualized, drug addiction, all of those things that were to come, started with a kid having sex in the backseat of cars with adult men. So I don't know. I, I, it's funny. I just don't, I, I guess I have a hard time blaming them. I don't want to because I wanted it so badly myself. And, and I don't have to, there's not, it's not a big mystery as to why I was a young gay kid growing up in Bossier City, Louisiana, desperately wanting to sort it out, to be accepted, to, 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 to find my tribe that thought that all of this was okay.
I graduated high school when I was 17, and the day after graduation, I had the car packed up, and I was on the way to New Orleans. Uh, I'd gotten a scholarship at the University of New Orleans, and I couldn't get out of there fast enough because I knew what awaited me. I'd made a trip or two to New Orleans, and I was ready for it. I mean, New Orleans, everybody says, oh, I want to go during Mardi Gras, and it's like, New Orleans is Mardi Gras every weekend. So I am in New Orleans in 78. And what you have here is really the, the, the high point of what was to be gay liberation. Mm. Remember, this is pre-AIDS. This is pre-AIDS. The, the, the sexual liberation for the straights had kind of you know, been percolating throughout the 60s and early 70s. And now it was our turn. And we were on the cover of Time magazine, you know, a gay couple in, in the late 70s. And it was our turn. It's in the bars. It's around the pool table. It's, uh, it's, in, <laughs> it's on the balconies. It's getting picked up. It's going home. It's a lot of drinking. Uh, and it is the bathhouses. So the bathhouse to me was just, it was so, such great drive-through sex. And... You know, when, when you ask about this magic number that, that, you know, I'll never really be able to uh, accurately come up with, it's, it's because of all of those bathhouse situations where it was all cocks and holes. And for people who don't know about bathhouse culture, basically it's, it's a space where you go and they have showers, they have a sauna, you're walking around just in a towel, you get a locker, and then there are rooms where you can go and have sex with people. And like you said, you could end up having sex or a sexual encounter of some kind with many, many, many men in one night or one, one um, visit, right? <laughs> exactly. That is, in fact, the precise idea. I want to see what all these different dicks look like. Okay, can I just get, let's get, <laughs> I want to see what all the di different dicks and asses look like and how they feel. That's what I wanted when I would go there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sex was still not particularly emotional for me. It was something that was done for uh, pleasure and fun and adventure. And although I had a boyfriend, I didn't really understand what love was and what it meant to really love somebody else. I was still very much in, you know, this is all recreational mode. So how long were you in New Orleans? And can you speculate <laughs> About by the time you leave New Orleans, how many men do you think you've slept with at this point? Oh, by the time I've left New Orleans, I've had sex with a couple of thousand guys. Okay. I, it depends on how you count it. In other words, if uh, somebody sucks my dick in a bar, that's sex. Uh, you know, this is not the Clintonian version of sex, right? This is, that's sex. You know, if, if, if I go down on a guy in a bar or, uh, or something, that's sex. Well, if that's the case, then I would often have sex. Any night I went out, which I come out, I lived near the French Quarter. Any night I would go out, there was sex going on in those bars. Mm -hmm. So you'd have a couple of drinks, you'd be out on the balcony, there'd be some cock sucking, there'd be this or that. So yeah, by the time I left, yeah, let's rack up a couple of thousand, probably. You know, um, I, I, I want to say that I didn't, it wasn't this conscious uh, goal of racking up, you know, how many, you know, how many, uh, uh, you know, notches on the bedpost, the, the bedpost would not be, there would be no more bedposts there. The, the whole four poster would have been demolished, but it was, it was not a conscious choice. 
And you know, it, it's, it, it shouldn't come as any surprise that after a couple hundred years of oppression and suppression and repression, uh, gay men decide uh, to uh, come out with a bang. That's, to me, what happened and what I was a part of. You had a boyfriend during some of this. Did your boyfriend know that you were doing this? Was your boyfriend doing this too? Where, where was the idea of monogamy in all of this? <laughs> I want to say, first of all, that at heart, I'm a down-home guy that has regular good old all-American values, whether whatever, however you want to define that. In other words, I like the idea of being married and being devoted and, and all of that. I didn't think that was available to me. I wasn't quite sure. I knew that I could have a boyfriend that I could really like and care about. And Charlie was that man who I met while in New Orleans. He was also great sex and um, handsome and all of these things. And so the idea of playing house with him sounded like fun. It also felt like playing house. Mm -hmm. Again, I didn't know what was what I got to have. So now you leave New Orleans and where do you head to? I, I go to Los Angeles. 80 or 81, I moved to Los Angeles with my boyfriend, Charlie. After the break, we'll follow Mark across the country, all the way to California. Selling a little? Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Okay, we're back. And before we continue with Mark, I want to address why we're following his story in the first place. Yes, he slept with thousands of people. But behind that number is a guy who is learning about himself and the world around him through sex. In this first season of the podcast, we've talked a lot about the multiple roles sex can play in a life. Sex is pleasure, communication, validation, a site for magic and mishaps. And for Mark, it's a roadmap. Follow the sex and where it took you, and you're basically looking at growing up. So as you hear the rest of his story, whether you fucked one person or 10 or 100 or 1,000 plus or no one, I challenge you to picture your own experience with sex. How has it or hasn't it changed your life? Where did it take you and where are you now? So we moved to LA in 80, 80, 80, 81. And uh, I'm immediately a kid in a new candy store a new kind of candy store. This is West Hollywood with all that it has to offer. I'm 20, 21, strawberry blonde, adorable. Then there were sex clubs and there was the cruising on the streets. Still no internet, still no other way to meet a man except to lock eyes with him in person. 
something that I just, that I still grieve is street cruising. The idea that you're walking down a sidewalk in the neighborhood, and walking up to you is a man who's fine. Mm. And you make eye contact and you pass him and then you dare to turn around and look again. Right. You wait and, the three seconds and then you do the turn, right? Yes. Yeah. And then he turns. And then one of you gets the guts to just stand there and not turn back. I will say that there is no feeling that I've ever experienced like that moment when you turn around and then the other guy turns around. And you stop and you stop walking. Oh, yeah. And it's a panic and it's an exhilaration. And in that moment, I don't know how to explain it if you've never experienced it. It, it is thrilling. Yes. Yeah. Well, here's my problem. I had to fuck everybody that wanted to fuck me. I couldn't just take it as a compliment. I couldn't just enjoy that thrill you just described and go, oh, wow, that's great. Wow. Aww. Aww. And then keep walking so that you can make it home in time for dinner with your lover. Uh, no, God forbid somebody want me that I didn't immediately respond to and have sex with. I, I had no kind of, uh, uh, you know, impulse control, right? And... Um, and so that happened a lot. But it, at any rate, so it's 1985, you know, AIDS has come along and um, it's starting to kill people. We're living there in West Hollywood. So it, it, it's, it's hard. It's, this is hard. This is hard. Uh, everybody starts to die. And, uh, and, I, and I mean by that, it's like encroaching on your social circle. You know, it's like the ripple gets closer. You know, the, uh, your favorite guy at the bank, the teller at the bank that you like and think is cute. And suddenly he's just not there anymore, you know. Mm. Um, and it would be okay if that was occasional because people find other jobs. But it's him and it's the bartender and it's the guy that cuts your hair or the guy in the next station. And that station is now empty or it, it, it's sudden. It's just like closer and closer until your best friend is in the hospital. And um, it's, it was living in a, it was like living in this existential nightmare. And I think um, if you think COVID is bad, <laughs> let me tell you, I, you know, and I hate to even having said that because tragedy is not a contest. Mm -hmm. All I can tell you is my own experience. And my experience was, it was bedside to emergency room to memorial service. Rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, nonstop. Mm -hmm. And I had friends die in my guest room several times. You know, I said, if you, uh, <laughs> I said, if you had a guest room in West Hollywood, uh, somebody was dying in it mm. because there was such a need. Talk about, you know, the, 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 the beds are full within the hospitals during COVID. Well, <laughs> the guest rooms were full during AIDS mm -hmm. because families had rejected them. The roommates had kicked them out. They had no place to go. I mean, it's, that is literally, literally hell on earth. But my question is, what's going on with your sex life at this time? 
Are you still having sex the way you were? Have you put a halt on it? How, how, are, how are you sort of making the two things work with each other or not? How does that make sense? Um, the bars emptied out. I remember not going to the bars as much. But that doesn't mean I wasn't having sex. I met guys, I met fuck buddies at um, uh, AIDS support groups. So mm. in 1985, the test is released. They didn't identify HIV till 84. And then in 85, they come out with a test. And it was in March of 85, I took the test right away and I was positive. Um, and so I figured I would be dead in a couple of years. Um, now... How did that affect my sex life? I limited myself to kind of like a fuck buddies on hand. I remember the first fuck buddy of mine that died. I was going down on him and I saw a KS lesion on his inner thigh. Mm. That was the uh, uh, skin cancer that was common with people with uh, AIDS. I'm going down on him. I see a lesion on his inner thigh and I said, hey, uh, did you know you had this? <laughs> Um, and he was dead in three months. Um, so I did limit myself to kind of, it wasn't like I was limiting myself to other people who were positive because we didn't know. Right. And by the way, we didn't care in terms of there was no judgment. It was, it was just a matter of trying to help people as much best we could help them die. Usually lots of assisted suicide and stuff going on. So that does put a damper on your, on your libido. Okay. Right. Are you having safe sex at this point or safer uh, sex at this point? Yeah. Is that people know I'm positive. I'm open about that. Right. Um, but I didn't like, I didn't like rubbers um, and neither did they. And, you know, I, let's just clear the, something up. People mistakenly view the eighties as some, as a period of great sexual austerity. Hmm. You know, oh, everybody, everybody zipped it up and because they were all being activists and going to town hall meetings. No, we might have been going to town hall meetings, but we were meeting tricks and we were fucking each other's brains out. And there were body fluids flying back and forth because it was our big fuck you to AIDS. You will not take this from us, this, this life-affirming thing, which is sex. Now, that's not the same thing as don't take away our bathhouses because we need to continue having lots of anonymous sex. It wasn't that. It was this sex I'm having with this friend, this buddy, this lover, this fuck bud means something to me. And it's not easily dismissed as much as the epidemiologists who are straight and the government who is straight. You know, we're not disposable and neither is our sex lives. And people wanted to act as if it was. Uh, what we learned uh, and what I learned later as an AIDS educator and all of that was that sexual Desire is complicated and primal and important. And um, we have to mitigate, as Anthony Fauci would say, we must mitigate. But you'll notice you don't see people staying in their homes right now uh, during COVID, not venturing out at all, uh, which is essentially what they were asking gay men to do with their sex lives in the 80s. So yes, we continued having sex. Was it bathhouses? No. Did the body count <laughs> of sex partners uh, slow down? Yes. Yes, it did. Mm -hmm. But it was absolutely still there and still vital and important. 
Yeah, it's really interesting because I think, like you said, a lot of people would think when this menace comes along, when this virus comes along, you would think the reaction would be, okay, we have to stop. But you're saying the sex was actually such a vital part of of your life and of gay men's lives after being told that they were deviants and told that you were wrong and that your that your desire was disordered. The, now that you had finally been able to put it in a place that felt right, you weren't going to give that up. No, and we and, and the thing is, is that it, it's it's easy for people to dismiss we won't we didn't want to give it up as some sort of selfishness mm. on our part. It was much more profound. It was it had a lot more humanity in it in in it than simply I want more, I don't take away my sex life darling, much more than that. And, and, and because we were coming off this huge wave of the, the gay, gay lib, gay sexual revolution coming that began in the late 70s and was rolling along when, uh, when the deaths became, you know, began. Um, and, um, and all the baggage that came with it, you know. I mean, I, I stared at the TV all day and heard preachers say, see, we told you, mm-hmm. we told you. Gay men, dying, sex, we told you so. And I'll tell you, for a guy that grew up in those church choirs, trying my best to be the, a good little boy and fighting my instincts, there was a piece of me that heard that preacher on TV, and I believed him. I thought maybe he was right. A little piece of me. Maybe he's right. Maybe this is God. Maybe I had it wrong all along. I mean, there, there, was, there was that. And, and there were politicians uh, debating on the floor of the U.S. Congress whether or not we should be um, isolated on, 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 a, on an island somewhere. Those of us who were HIV positive, we should be quarantined to an island somewhere. I always said if they, if they give us Maui, we'll go. <laughs> Well, I think some people might be surprised if we fast forward that you are now married and in a monogamous relationship. True? Yes. Yes. How does that, how does that happen? When did that happen? How did that happen? I think that's, okay. that's the curveball no one saw coming. <laughs> well, you know, it's also true that I, I developed a drug addiction and off and on I was a heavy using uh, addict of some sort, whether it was cocaine in the 80s or the dance floor drugs in the 90s or then crystal meth afterwards. And so I, I was playing with a skewed brain um, in terms of who I was authentically because the drugs drove a lot of my sex life in terms of, you know, always pushing the envelope, trying to find the bigger thrill, doing naughty things that, as it turns out, really aren't my authentic self. And so my kind of road to recovering from those years of addiction has been about who it really, who am I authentically? What do I really like <laughs> to do, you know? And after some period of reflection and uh, what my therapist called cleansing the palate, Mark, just stop mm. having sex for a while. Could you do that? Just stop and cleanse the palate and then see what tastes good after that. Mm. Well, that turned out to be great advice. That's exactly what I did. And as I kind of rebuilt, it turns out I'm just... I'm just this uh, (laughs) very traditional guy. I am your basic fuck. I do not need a marching band. 
are a trapeze. I just am, I just like to, to I, I like to fuck my husband and I like to uh, have some oral sex maybe once a week and I'm satisfied and I'm good. And um, <laughs> who knew, right? Um, but I think I needed, um, I needed time to clear my head. I think that it was uh, so... That I think that my my behaviors were driven by trauma, and uh, the trauma of AIDS, uh, the trauma of growing up gay and trying so desperately to be validated. So, where I've ended up, by the way, is not by any means um, an indictment of the kind of sex I had for so long, and in fact having had those experiences are very much shapes the guy I am now. And I have empathy and understanding for people who choose other kinds of sexual lifestyles. Um, I just know what works for me now. And I'll tell you something. It's interesting. First of all, I've learned two things. One, if you don't have sex with other people, you have more sex with your husband. That's, that was a revelation to me, you know, uh, and two, um, monogamy can be sexy too. Having sex with him, go and thinking to myself, he's getting, I'm the only one getting this that I'm getting. And he's the only one getting this that I'm giving. There's something about that that just feels sexy to me. And maybe because it's such a change of pace over the life I've lived, I don't know. But it works, and I'm so grateful uh, that this is where I'm at, that this is where I'm at now. Do you have any regrets about your sex life or, or about your life in general? Oh, I have regrets. <laughs> I, I have all sorts of regrets, uh, and I, I, I guess I wouldn't be human or uh, honest if if I didn't. Um, I, I have regrets about uh, exploiting people, exploiting mm -hmm. other people. I wish I had been able to conduct myself with more integrity. Mm. I think that you can be um, a, uh, a very sexually active person and conduct yourself with, with honesty and integrity. I didn't. Um, but I don't have regret about the tenor of my sex life, the fact that I had a lot of sex or anything like that. No, not at all, not at all. I, I'm a product of my times. But that is not an excuse. It might be a reason. And I'm happy with the way things are today. And I, um, I don't mind telling you all of this with uh, my husband, uh, you know, in the next room. To that point, what would you say to someone who's listening to this right now and is thinking, sleeping with 10,000 men, that's disgusting. That's gross. There's, there's no excuse for that. What would you say to them? I, <laughs> gosh, one thing I've learned is that judgment just doesn't get us anywhere. It's not a very helpful um, activity. We learned during the AIDS crisis that when we judged people's behaviors, they shut down talking about it. They didn't shut down doing it. They just shut down talking about it. And so then they became unreachable. And as a result, we couldn't reach them with messages about safer sex or, or, or anything that might mitigate their risk. Uh, so I've never seen judgment as a very um, useful activity. 
Uh, and so I, gen I generally dismiss it when I hear those sorts of judgments from other people. I dismiss it. I, I understand where they're coming from. I know that judgment is a way of controlling things maybe that you don't understand. We judge people, you know, who are on the beach during COVID. We judge people who are having sex during HIV. You know, um, I, I get it. it it's, uh, but it's, it's uh, counterfeit, really. Judgment is a counterfeit emotion. It makes us think we have a certain control over somebody else when we don't. What's the one thing that you want people to take away from your story? And when I say your story, I mean, you have many stories, but this story, this story of a man who has lived for almost 60 years and has slept with, you know, almost 10,000 people. What is the takeaway for you? Or what do you hope the takeaway is? I think that somebody coming of age today uh, as a LGBTQ person has an opportunity to find acceptance and validation and joy and sex without having to be exploited or to exploit other people. I did both of those things because my options were so limited. I only had, my only vocabulary was sex. The vocabulary of gay men in the late seventies, early eighties was sex. Um, now we have a huge vocabulary and we have huge opportunities for ourselves to go find ways to be validated, to feel powerful, to feel wanted, to feel desire for other people um, without diminishing it all to cocks and holes. And um, uh, that's progress. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to see that. And I'm thrilled to see that a younger person... Are, today who hears my story thinks to themselves, boy, I, I certainly don't have to go do all that. Uh, and no, you don't. You might, but you don't have to. There are other ways to get um, validated and feel powerful than, than that. But there's nothing wrong with it if you do. Of course, you might. Like I said, you might. And more power to you. For many of us, sex is a huge part of our lives. Wanting it, looking for it, having it, loving it, being disappointed by it. It can change everything from who we spend our time with to where we live, and it can change the way we see the world. And sometimes it can even change the way the world sees us. Sex has been a constant companion for Mark throughout his life. He's had a lot of it, probably way more than the rest of us. But what I'm taking away from my conversation with him is that it's not just about the number of people we've gotten off with. It's what those experiences show us and how they transform us. This is going to sound a little hokey, so bear with me. But I think sex is a gift. Or it can be. It can reveal parts of ourselves we didn't know we had. It can teach us things about the people we're fucking. Or it can just feel really good and be a really fun way to spend a night, or even 10 minutes. And I don't think any of those things are necessarily more valuable than the others. Ultimately, I think it's about letting our desire lead us to places that we hope feel good, in every sense of the word, and then learning from it, no matter what happens or who or what we find there. D is for Desire is produced and edited by Nick Offenberg, Sarah Patterson, Becca DiGregorio, and me, Noah Michelson. Until next time, remember, 
It's not taboo if it turns you on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.